Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. John Barlow at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. John, how are you doing? Great. Glad to be here. Me too. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the Mayo Clinic, or the institutions of any of our guests. So we um, are sitting here today um, in Zurich, Switzerland, with uh, Dr. Marcus Scheibel at the Schultes Clinic, and we've been very fortunate to be his guest over the past 48 hours. We've seen him in the operating room and in clinic. Um, he's been a very gracious host, and um, we've learned a ton from him. So thank you so much for having us, Dr. Scheibel. Thank you, guys, for joining us. So we've learned a lot from you in the past two days. I think one of the things that's been the most remarkable is we've seen you really leverage your shoulder arthroplasty registry. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about the registry and some of the things you've taught us that you've learned from it recently. Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, our arthroplasty registry was uh, initiated in 2006 and it's actually our oldest registry. We're also running uh, three other registry, but uh, the arthroplasty registry is probably the registry with the longest tradition within the hospital. And obviously it's uh, instrument of quality control number one but number two also a great tool to conduct research and uh, we have um, included now more than 3500 uh, arthroplasties over the last uh, 17 uh, years so it's it's filled with data and uh, usually we uh, see the patient of course preoperatively and then on a regular basis postoperatively usually at six months, uh, two years, uh, five years, and uh, 10 years and 15 years. So the idea is really to have long-term data um, out of this registry. And uh, the, the, the beauty of the registry and the beauty of the environment here is basically that we have surgeons using different implants. So we can compare the performance of different implants according to the same pathology. And I think that's that's really um, a great thing due to the situation. As you know, there are so many companies out there uh, bringing different implants to market. And uh, sometimes uh, customers are confused, which implant should you use and what is the best performance and so on and so on. Number two, I have to say, um, we learned also from the registry, um, if an implant doesn't work properly, the registry can help you in identifying the problem uh, of the implant and also look at your revision rate, look at uh, um, the loosening or whatsoever. So there are uh, different, uh, I think, um, true advantages. It's not just about uh, quality control, it's also about uh, research. And most of the studies uh, that we have been published over the last couple of years on arthroplasty and those that we will publish in the future, they originate from registry data. The other thing that I would say is we've traveled across Europe, we've seen some different um, strategies in terms of component positioning and type. And one of the things that I really appreciate is you've, from a research perspective, been thoughtful and being systematic about how you're putting in reverses so that you can later study it. What's your current strategy in terms of lateralization, distalization on the glenoid side, on the humeral side, and, where, and um, how do you customize that for patients? Yeah, that's also a great question. Um, I think, uh, again, uh, the answer comes from registry data. And one of the first studies that we conducted uh, a couple of years ago uh, wanted to compare the Gramot type of design with a lateralized design. So this was a 155 degree neck shaft angle with an eccentric sphere. And we compared it to 135 degree and a lateralized sphere design. 
and, and truly this study showed that uh, you know overall let's say scoring is pretty comparable but there's a true advantage for the lateralized design in terms of external rotation in terms of decreasing notching so from that study on, uh, on we um, evaluated what is better onlay designs inlay designs uh, have you do you have to do just uh, base plate lateralization or even um, base plate plus sphere lateralization on the glenoid side so we looked at uh, another group of patients where we have been using uh, an onlay system 145 degree neck shaft angle with um, call it bipolar metallic lateralization so it was just uh, not just on the humeral side but also on the glenoid side with a um, with a base plate and, and a sphere uh, lateralizing the construct and uh, this has outperformed you know all the results that we have seen so far so at the moment we are very much in favor of um, bipolar metallic lateralization we truly believe that the, the greatest effect comes from the glenoid lateralization overall plus um, obviously the um, uh, the humeral 145 degree uh, neck shaft angle i cannot give you true numbers i cannot say you have to lateralize five millimeter or six millimeters because i don't really believe in this kind of calculation i rather believe um, in operating patients with the same pathology with the same kind of um, uh, component positioning and component lateralization then look at the results of these patients and then come up with an idea what is the best configuration and probably you can you know do this kind of um, component positioning and uh, component lateralization with different implants it doesn't need to be one specific implant it's just a question how, how you place it right so um, at the moment um, as i as I said, we, are, we like to lateralize with metal uh, via the base plate on the glenoid side plus an eccentric sphere and we like to have a um, 145 degree neck shaft angle uh, on the humeral side. That's the current strategy. Yeah, I think that's, um, it's super interesting, I think, for both of us to hear that you're so systematic about it, which I think is a really great way for us to advance that you say we'll do this determine whether how well it works and then try and make incremental improvements instead of always altering what you're doing and then having a great deal of difficulty retrospectively determining which of those things worked and which one didn't and one of the things i wanted to ask you about the registry is you know you mentioned that there's multiple components multiple companies um and you know that you've kind of migrated towards this what I think both John and I see is a little bit of a compromise solution. It's not 135, it's not 155, it's 145 in the middle. You know, it's not 10 millimeters of lateralization, it's maybe somewhere around six millimeters of lateralization. Do you think that that's where everyone's moving? I think that's what we're seeing. Do you think that's kind of maybe this kind of, as, as of our current understanding, kind of optimized reverse, is that somewhere in the middle solution? Yeah, I think, you know, if, um, if you take, let's say, uh, the, 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 the maxim on the one side the, the Gramo type of design where everyone started with at least in Europe um, and you on the, on the other side the 135 degree where you only lateralize and you don't really distalize anymore so um, I think the, 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 the truth lies somewhere in between um, and I mean you from your experience that you have now had with a fellowship and you've seen that most of these surgeons moving in, in this direction 
it probably reflects also the experience of the surgeons they had looking at their patients, you know, with these specific implants. And um, and we are in Switzerland, so we always like to make the Swiss compromise. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why we are there, probably. Yeah. Um, that's 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 great. We um, I wanted to move on to something we haven't talked about as much, but that you've written a lot about, and I think taught a lot of surgeons about, and that's AC separations and kind of the optimum treatment of it. I know reading the literature, it looks like you've been through a couple of different iterations. Tell us about your current treatment algorithm for those and um, what you've kind of learned over time about how to optimize the treatment for that injury. Yeah, that's also a great topic and um, one of my, my favorite, you know, since we've been doing so much scientific work on, on AC separation, acute and chronic um, I have to say that um, over the last 15 years, um, we are operating on less patients with AC joint instability because, as you know, patients who have uh, acute ROCO type 5, they can do very well with non-op treatment. And I think the strategy in the US is still you treat them non-op and if it doesn't work, you go for a reconstruction. However, I have to say that um, Historically, and also, you know, the patients that we are seeing here, it's probably a specific patient selection, but those patients, they, often they don't want to have the cosmetic deformity. So they're, they're not really patients who, they care about function, of course, but if, you, if they stand in front of the mirror and you ask them, listen, you want to stay like this for the rest of your life, most of them will say no. So um, it, it tends to be a little bit of a, a cosmetical procedure, you know, it, it's strange, but it's like this. And uh, from the technique point of view, I can tell you that I started in 2006 um, with a tightrope device um, in a single tunnel procedure. This was actually the tightrope that was initially developed for syndesmosis repair. And we did like um, five, six cases and they all um, had a redislocation very early at uh, six to three uh, six weeks to three months so we said this construct is not strong enough so we went to a double tightrope reconstruction and we published our results in hsm in 2011 which was a, a double button um, let's say coracoclavicular stabilization without addressing the ac joint mm -hmm. and from this study we learned that around 50 percent have persistent posterior instability of the clavicle and those patients had also inferior clinical outcome. So we thought, okay, if we do an arthroscopic stabilization, we need somehow address the AC joint as well. So just to, to, to take care of the horizontal instability component. So we added um, a horizontal uh, triangular cerclage that can be done percutaneously. I mean, all our videos are on Vumedi, if you're interested to watch. Um, and uh, we did a double tightrope plus um, plus uh, fiber tape cerclage for almost six years. That was a very stable construct, and the results um, we had they were very good in terms of function, also but also of cosmesis. But uh, I also realized that it's a uh, for surgeons who are not so familiar with um, with uh, the arthroscopic technique making two tunnels, you know, under image intensifier control plus arthroscopy, it's difficult, you know, and obviously you uh, weaken the bony structures, you weaken the coracoid, you weaken the clavicle if you make two drill holes. So I thought we need to simplify this uh, operation, but still keeping um, the results 
uh, or keeping the advantages of CC and AC stabilization, what we learned with the techniques that we would develop in the future. So um, we went uh, back to a, let's say, a single tightrope device with an horizontal uh, still circlage, uh, so to treat CC and AC instability. Um, but at the moment, uh, we are using the low profile tightrope because uh, it's an implant that has, in my opinion, three advantages. Number one, it's very stable. Number two, um, it avoids knot stacks. So you do, you're not tying on top of the clavicle. The knots are inside the, the top head button. So, and we published this already. Um, there is uh, less um, uh, implant irritation uh, with this implant. And number three, which is, I, I believe is something that is uh, not really, um, uh, has not had the awareness yet, uh, it decreases tunnel widening. So we realized that uh, tunnel widening can be associated with uh, instability of the, of the clavicle after AC reconstruction. So our goal needs to be in the future to avoid tunnel widening and the low profile tightrope, you know, since it's <coughs> part of the uh, tightrope is in the clavicle, at least uh, this portion is uh, protected from tunnel widening. So we are now at a very, let's say, relatively simple technique that even my residents are doing in 20, 25 minutes. Uh, with very high stability but and that's my final point we still have these let's say biological failures so we have patients who have recurrent instability due to the fact that the ligaments don't do not heal and so my strategy at the moment is I would like to figure out I would like to figure out predictive factors in the acute situation where I still can do just a synthetic stabilization and I can predict that the ligaments heal what we're doing at the moment, um, we are doing MRI studies, uh, pre-op MRI studies. We look at the tear pattern of the CC ligaments and of the AC ligaments. And we will correlate our results of the synthetic stabilization with a pre-op detected tear pattern to figure out if this will help us in you know, um, counseling the patients better preoperatively if they need maybe a graft in the... Um, on the first uh, the first operation already so that's where we are at the moment a long story but um, but you know in 2006 no one was doing this arthroscopically it was really um, a new way and I remember the first operation took two and a half hours you know just for making one tunnel <laughs> through the clavicle and the coracoid and now it's the residents do this in 25 minutes and so, yeah. it improved a lot I would say and if you would compare um, let's say um, this procedure compared to what is out there, like hook plate and so on. Of course, the hook plate is probably stronger and you can mobilize probably the patients earlier. This has been shown in some studies. But at the time when, when the tightrope patients are going back to activities, are going back to sports, you would readmit the patient with a hook plate to hospital and schedule him for surgery to remove the hook plate. <laughs> so this kind of, let's say, very early advantage is not really reflected after a couple of months. Mm -hmm. so. That's why I'm still doing the, uh, the arthroscopic uh, way of, of AC joint stabilization. And um, as we discussed already, uh, we are using grafts more often even in the acute setting at the moment. Hmm. Well, and we know that you're carefully following those patients and you have a registry for your AC patients as well, non-operative and operative. So we'll certainly look forward to learning more about that. I'd like to switch gears. Another one of the really fun things of traveling around Europe is we get to hear the history of some of 
different shoulder procedures and um, the evolution of shoulder procedures. So let's switch gears to the bone block um, techniques. And you were able to share us share with us some insight about some of the history of stabilization procedures across uh, Germany and Europe and Switzerland. And uh, can you enlighten the listeners about some of that uh, history and then maybe where you are now with arthroscopic or open bone block versus ladder J procedures? Yeah, that's also one of my favorite topics, <laughs> as you know. Um, I, I just have to say, you know, um, how you treat patients with anterior shoulder instability really depends also a little bit where you did grow up. So if you would uh, did your residency in the France, you would be a Lattaché guy for sure. If you would uh, have done your residency in Austria with Herbert Resch, you would be a free bone block J. Graft guy. You know, so it really depends who teaches you. And you know, in terms of indications, I mean, you know, all know the 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 near award study from Philip Moroda where he showed no difference between uh, free bone block versus Lattaché. So that just shows that both technique work, right? So that's just clear, both technique work. Um, I always have the feeling since I was doing both techniques for years now um, that the Lattaché procedure has um, a higher rate of complications even after the learning curve, I have to say, um, and the spectrum of complications with the Latashi is different compared to free bone block procedures. And that's also reflected in the world literature, you know, with permanent nerve lesions and something that we have never seen with, with free bone block procedures. And it's not published about this yet. So um, f that's from, you know, my current thinking about, um, about uh, bone block, uh, free bone grafts versus Latashi. And um, I would say um, for the free bone blocks, uh, we started in 2006 uh, leveraging this operation to an arthroscopic procedure. So uh, initially we designed a technique where we've been using biocompression screws uh, after inserting the iliac crest uh, via the rotator interval and then we fixed it with biocompression screws. And the idea behind was always to avoid problems with metal in the glenohumeral joint and we have seen many of those problems you know with young patients where the screw heads were prominent and causing chondral lesions on the humeral side or damaging the subscap in the front so there were multiple problems that we wanted to avoid with uh, not just switching from um, open to arthroscopic in terms of subscapularis problems but also uh, changing uh, the implants you know and it's just nice if you look at the bony reconstruction uh, in the front of the shoulder at the inferior glenoid and there is no metal it just looks good right and so at the moment we are still using free uh, graft procedures arthroscopically um, my favorite te technique at the moment is uh, to use interconnected uh, corkscrews as a fixation method it's very fast it works very well um, i just don't know what is the best graft and uh, I think there is a long discussion on allograft, autografts. We all know that the iliac crest is, in terms of the uh, harvesting morbidity, probably not the best, the best graft that uh, you would use. It takes additional time to harvest the graft and so on and so on with the associated complications that can occur. But at least we know from the iliac crest we have the, the most data available. So every new graft that comes out, like the distal tibia, uh, fresh frozen distal tibia, like you're using in the US, 
the, the needs to the results needs to be judged according to the results of um, of the of the ilia crest. So um, and as a you know a secondary operation, if if the anterior approach with the corkscrew doesn't really work, uh, we do the bone circlage, which is a little bit more complicated but also very strong. It avoids metal, and um, the results we have they are they are quite comparable to what we used before with the biocompression screws. One thing, and that's very interesting, you mentioned the history. So, um, as you know, um, the, the first free bone block procedure was conducted by Eden and Hübinet. So Eden was a German surgeon. Um, he was working at the University of Jena, which is mid-Germany. And uh, he used uh, a free bone graft um, at uh, this time, I think in 19... Um, this was in 19, probably 100 years ago, around 100 years ago. And Hübinet, a guy from Sweden, also used a free bone block and they somehow knew each other and they decided to name this procedure Eden Hübinet procedure. So how this, uh, that's how it developed. And um, so this was a German guy first. And it's interesting that uh, actually the first uh, label repair, the Bankard repair, what we call it today, uh, was not really done by Bankert, it was done by Pertis. Uh, Pertis, you know, from the hip disease. Pertis was also a German surgeon. He became more famous for, for the hip disease that he discovered. But he, in his book in 1906, he described uh, the first labor repair. So we should actually rename the Bankert repair and call it <laughs> Pertis repair, <laughs> if we are very true. You know. mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I have to say that the Latashi procedure, obviously it was, um, it was developed by Latashi and then further modified by Schilwalsch, Bristol in between and so on with modifications. But uh, unfortunately, and that's just the truth of the history, the first one in the literature who conducted uh, coroquid transfer was a German surgeon. <laughs> and his name is Nöske, so he was a German surgeon from Berlin he didn't really do a, a coracoid osteotomy and then transferred the coracoid all the way down and fixed it with screws. He did kind of a tria procedure. So he osteotomized the coracoid and he like tilted it down and he used screw, uh, sutures to uh, between the um, osteosutures basically between the block and the glenoid to get primary stability. So the, 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 the three blockbusters that we are doing in nowadays have been invented by, I hate to say it, but, but I love to say it, <laughs> German surgeons. <laughs> Obviously modified by many other people and popularized by many other people. Yeah. We, we were talking together that we feel like that just means the Germans need to better speak English so they can publish their results in the English literature and get credit for them. I agree. <laughs> but we, we all improve over the years. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much for speaking with us. This is, again, this has been a phenomenal visit for both of us, and we really appreciate your insights and the time you've spent. We know you're busy, and it's um, it's been very impactful for the both of us. So, um, uh, we've again, we really appreciate it, and we're thankful for your time. Thank you. Great for having you.